Leeds, Leeds, Leeds. What is happening? Welcome to Working Hours, a show about a place called Leeds, a time called now, and an activity called work. Working Hours wants to record 1,000 lawyers over the course of this, the most important decade in the history of the human species, and ask them about what they do all day and hear how they feel about it. My mission is to try to map out what my city, Leeds, a city that has declared a climate emergency, is doing during humanity's biggest emergency. On working hours, we hear how lawyers have, are, and will be coping with our multiple crises. The global pandemic, Brexit, and of course, the ongoing and accelerating collapsing of capitalism, the state, and the climate through this decade. To do this, I need people, people like you, dear listener. Most of all, I need people who are in Leeds or who are from Leeds to come on this show and be my guests. So please join me and help me with this mission whenever and however you can. Critically, I will need people like you, dear listener, as financial backers. Please consider supporting or donating to this project. You can do so with a £1 monthly donation via either Patreon or Ko-fi, or you could donate any one-off amount to Working Hours via either Ko-fi or through the LibrePay button on the About page of Western Studios' website. Thank you. My name is Simon, and this is all my fault. What did you want to be when you grew up? I wouldn't say that I actually really had any thoughts about what I wanted to be as I grew up. Mm -hmm. But I know that sort of like a defining point when I was little mm. would have been when I was about five years old. Mm. Uh, it could have been before that, I'm not sure. When my dad took me to um, the Williamson Art Gallery, mm -hmm. which is a local art gallery and museum to where I used to live on the Wirral. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, that place has sort of just stayed with me ever since. I, you know, I still go back there now whenever I can. Mm. Um, and I just remember sort of like the objects of that museum being something that sort of like really captured my imagination. Mm. Certain things that I remembered for my entire life mm. when I got to sort of like time to leave school, noticing what the heck do I do? Mm. Um, I went to art college. Mm. Um, but there's, was there a particular work that struck you or was it just sort of like you walked in? Was it like walking into, you know, the Natural History Museum and seeing the dinosaurs kind of thing of just like, whoa? Uh, yeah, it was. I mean, you know, even, even in the 1970s, it was like walking into a building that was actually the 1900s. Yeah. Um, you know, it had that sort of like great sort of ambience about it. Mm -hmm. There was one object in particular, and it's a, an object that I focused on in recent years as well. Mm -hmm. It was the, the the one thing that stood out above everything else to me, and that was an old Victorian polyphon. Okay. And I, remember, I have a distinct memory of it when I was little and throughout my whole sort of childhood growing up and visiting that gallery time and time again mm. was that it didn't matter whether it was me putting what at the time was a single penny coin into it or mm. or somebody else doing it whilst you were elsewhere in the building mm. you would just hear this sort of like whirring and clanking and this penny dropping into the machine mm. as it sort of slowly came to life and it would start just playing um a music box mm. um song um so it works just like a like um what do you call them uh, a music an actual musical yeah, yeah. it's a metal disc with yeah. Holes punched in it, and as it rotates, yeah. metal forks 
make this sort of plinky plonky music. Mm-hmm. And uh, for years, I didn't know. I always heard the same song because mm. I don't think they, they very often change the disc in it. Mm. Apparently, there was about 40 <laughs> discs, but okay. I only ever recall this one song. Yeah. Um, many, many years later in the mid 90s, I found out that actually, in actual fact, it was uh, I dreamt that I dwelt in marble halls, All right. uh, which was um, from a Victorian sort of thrippity opera. Um, and uh, just. The memory of that, you know, you, when you're very little and you've sort of sat in a room full of like oversized mm. Rococo style furniture mm. and stuff, <laughs> um, you know, and hearing that sort of drifting across, it was the most haunting thing I could ever, you know, describe to you. Yeah. And so in recent years, I went back and did a bit of a little bit of a talk mm. for a Thursday night sort of event at mm. Williamson as a sort of an aid to starting funding to get it repaired because right. they'd fallen into disrepair over yeah, the years, yeah. which happily they've, you know, they've made their money now and they've actually got the, the music box repaired cool. and, uh, which made me very happy yeah. because like I say, that's, it's something that I hope people get to sort of like hear for a long time to come mm. to make an artwork that I did, did, which I took to America in 2014, mm. I used that as the basis for a sound recording in mm-hmm. piece. Yeah, yeah. Um, so in actual fact, before I learned that it was not working properly, mm. I'd actually managed to record that song from my childhood onto. Yeah. You know, so I, I, I had it. Yeah. Permanently. So when it was sent away to be repaired and we didn't have had the machine a copy anymore, of it, yeah. we had a copy to use. You know, Very good. Yeah. So that was. Nice. I guess that really is what started the whole thing off for me. I mean, you know, I, I did a while at art college doing jewelry design and manufacturing. I went away, worked for Sainsbury's for 11 years, Mm. um, where I completely sort of like just got on with doing other things, you know, how it Mm. is. Uh, and then in 2000 decided to sort of jack in all of that and go back to college and do what I'd never done originally. And that was a degree. Mm-hmm. So, um, so I came to Leeds, to Leeds Metropolitan. As was a, it, was it art straight away then you, you yeah. were like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Art. okay. Yeah, definitely. And did, did any particular reason you picked Leeds was, did you have any connection to the city or was no, it I didn't. Kind of... Leeds as a city had kind of intrigued me when I was mm-hmm. younger. A lot of the music scene that I listened to sort of like came from Leeds in mm-hmm. the 80s. Mm-hmm. Um, there were, there was various things and I suppose, but nothing that I would say sort of especially sort of like conspired to bring me here, but, mm. uh, I came, had a look around the universities and stuff mm. and, uh, plumped in the end for these metropolitan. Mm. And now having done that course all these years later, and I graduated in 2003, at the time going into it, it was like, well, am I, am I doing the right thing here? Am I really, mm. um, you know, how you sort of, you get, to, uh, you get sort of caught up on, have I made the right decisions here? Mm-hmm. Uh, the course was nothing like I imagined it to be, mm-hmm. but that turned out to be a really good thing. Yeah. Because now all these years later, I, I can't imagine having done a different course, even the course that I'd imagined it to be because of its title at yeah. the time. Yeah. I was like, oh no, this is so much more Yeah. what I'm interested in here. So was it, uh, I, I mean, did the degree, did it? Did it kind of pay for itself? Was it the, was it the right decision? Yeah, I mean, it's never paid for itself mm. because you know that 
<laughs> student loans and all that. You yeah, know, yeah. Mine's going racking up year by year rather going out because you can just can't earn enough money to start paying the thing back. But um, ultimately, if we sort of talk in terms of um, sort of achievement or um, success in terms of having done things and made things happen, even if it wasn't mm. financially successful to be able mm. to get that loan paid back. Mm. Um, yeah, I couldn't imagine doing anything else and I wouldn't, and I still don't regret doing it now. Mm. Yeah. Um, money would be nice, but. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, gone are the days when a degree would lead to sort of higher earnings, so. Yeah. <laughs> and yet, strangely, that's how it's promoted to us these days, more than it ever was in the past. Yeah. Past, I think. Yeah. Um, the whole sort of like, you know, higher earnings for degree people is a completely disingenuous argument. You know, I think if and when people ever become wise to that particular bit of rhetoric, they will realise just how sort of rubbish that is really but i think it's it's kind of a trap because it's sort of like oh well you need to get a master's then oh well you you need to get your phd then so it's like what well, so i need to go into even more debt and do even more work well it's interesting <laughs> you say that actually because i remember when i was at art college you know end of the 80s beginning of the 90s and you know i i did a hnd mm -hmm. and um you know they were saying to me well you, you really need to do you know do another year and turn it into a degree mm -hmm. you know they will look at you without a degree or whatever mm. and that was what was being talked about then mm. um you know 11 years after that i then sort of like leave my job my earning job mm. to go to university and do a degree a degree and by the end of that three years already everybody around me is talking about their masters mm -hmm. you know and now i work in an art gallery mm. um where, you know, the talk is always now of PhDs. Mm. And so it is this ever sort of like spiraling, mm. you know, cost of education that sort of like determines um, how, you know, what kind of paid employment you get. Mm. And I, you know, I have to admit to being at that stage in my life where, you know, I'm 50 now. Mm. And I don't want to go through any more education now. As mm. far as I'm concerned, my education is kind of, it continues in this role that mm. I do now. Mm. Um, I'm thankful for the education that I got and that, you know, I can honestly say both times that mm. I had really good teachers and people who were enthused about mm. the arts and therefore made you want to do it even mm -hmm. more. Yeah. Um, and opened up doors to new ideas and possibilities and yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. But now I'm at that stage where I feel like I've kind of got enough of the practical skills that I want, mm -hmm. does being able to theorize about it anymore have any bearing on what I would do as a person in mm. the arts? Uh, at this point in life, I'm not sure it would. Mm. Um, there's always things we can learn mm. through education, but I think at the moment my, my, my main concern is how do I put what education I've got mm. to the best use that I can? Mm -hmm. while still using it myself, but trying to sort of pass it on to others at the same time. You're listening to Series 3, Episode 31, and to my guest, Bruce Davies. This is an in-person interview recorded at Basement Arts on the 2nd of August, 2022. You will hear a police siren at some point during this conversation. 
Hello, loves. Bruce Davies is an artist, writer and curator of Basement Arts Project. His work looks primarily at the relationship between artist, gallery and viewer, how environments can shape the perception and understanding of an artwork and how a space can alter the nature of the work itself. It has been this line of inquiry, along with four years as the organiser, curator, project manager and founder member of the Peripheral Artist Collective that led to the formation of Basement Arts Project. Bruce is also co-director and a writer for South Leeds Life. As Basement Arts Project, Bruce has developed a programme which has, over the last decade, become embedded in the South Leeds community. He has created an established programme of activities and exhibitions throughout the year at his South Leeds venue. Basement Arts Project participate regularly in external events that have taken many artists' work to Jamestown, USA, Sweden, Manchester, London, Liverpool and other venues around Leeds. Basement Arts Project is regularly involved in projects that revolve around community participation as well as supporting and assisting in the development of artists' work for other purposes. Basement Arts Project is regularly involved in projects that revolve around community participation as well as supporting and assisting in the development of artists' work for other purposes. To find out more, go to basementartsproject.com. Now, please enjoy this episode of Working Hours with Bruce Davies. What is it that you're you're doing now? So, uh, four days a week, mm-hmm. um, I work for Henry Moore Institute. Mm-hmm. I'm the receptionist there, mm-hmm. which means I kind of look after the galleries, the staffing, that kind of thing, on the ground floor, you know, the, the, the day-to-day dealing. Mm-hmm. Um, the in front yeah, of the house, yeah. yeah. That's that's four days a week. Then my other three days of the week, um, I am Basement Arts Project, mm-hmm. uh, which is a project I run here from my house. Mm-hmm. We started it 11 years ago now, mm-hmm. April 2011. And the idea was that we would stage exhibitions of artists' work mm-hmm. um, from whatever their background as a thing that, gave the local community here in Beeston, South Leeds, mm-hmm. um, access to art. Mm-hmm. Art is something that is not typically accessible to people, perhaps of a working class background. Mm-hmm. Um, I've always been of the opinion that it should be. Mm-hmm. I myself come from a very much a working class background mm-hmm. and I see that it was only through those people around me when I was very little, sort of giving me the impetus and mm. you know, the sort of the meaning in it to mm. to be able to know that that was the direction that I was heading. Um, I think there's a lot out there these days who don't have access to that kind of thing. Mm. You know, there's so much talk of art being surplus to requirements. You only have to look at the sort of that times list. I mean, I feel it was a joke anyway, but it does say something about how we view art. You know the list in the of uh, most useful and useless jobs in a pandemic, mm. and the number one most useless job in a pandemic, according to this Times survey, was an artist. Yeah, I would go more for like corporate law, or well, you know, like some kind of trade, uh, something financial services, you know, or politician. Yeah, <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, and, and to to be honest as well, I mean, so like thinking about that as a retort, you know, the third. I think it was the third most useful in the other side of the list was supermarket worker. Mm. You know, so we obviously had this um, sort of thing going around, this rhetoric of, 
um, all of a sudden supermarket work is important to us. Now I remember it being sort of like a deeply unsatisfying time dealing with the public when I worked in a supermarket. Mm. Not always. I mean, there were some very good people to work with and work for them. Yeah, well. but it's the bad times that stick out. <laughs> it is. <laughs> you know, but you know, what also sticks out is the sort of thing that people say, oh, supermarket worker, mm. you know, you need to go and get a better job than that. You, mm. you know, you're not, not much use. That kind of like that, that kind of thinking has sort of like come back post pandemic as well, no. because, you know, we're, you know, we hear so much sort of like criticism of what's perceived by others to be menial work now. Mm. It's not, never is it menial work because all of these things that I include artists in this list mm. provide us with something, even at the worst of times, mm. this idea that, um, you know, we're, we're stuck in a tunnel in the likes of a pandemic mm -hmm. and there has to be someone sort of tending that light at the end of the tunnel. Mm -hmm. We're not always going to be in a pandemic. Mm. There'll be a point where we come back into mm -hmm. a real world, into a real society again. Mm -hmm. What do you want that society to look like? Mm -hmm. Imagine that society without its supermarket workers. Well, that wouldn't exist either, you know, shop workers in general work. Imagine it without artists. Oh, well, actually the time that you've just had during this pandemic would have been very different without people in creative industries, mm. whether it's authors, mm. filmmakers, mm. musicians, mm. artists of varying different stripes in the visual arts, mm. all providing people with things that they can still sort of like think about even now at the worst of times mm -hmm. and get something that takes their mind off just how bad things might be right now. Mm. So I think they're always very sort of like destructive all of these lists that but they're normally written things. by people who you know who would be self-described as non-creative people and you know like that that's that element of them's largely been <laughs> squashed out so they're like no it's all rubbish <laughs> well that is, in itself is like completely disingenuous because it's like well you're writing aren't you you know mm. you're a yeah, yeah it's a creative industry. Yeah. You are part of that. You right. are still part of the same agenda really. Mm. Cause what's the one thing that you want to do during this pandemic? Mm. You want to sell newspapers. Mm. So you have to be able to write about it. Mm. Um, therefore thereby using one of your sort of like creative talents mm. to be able to do so. Mm. So, uh, you know, I don't think those kind of arguments from them flies really. <laughs> <laughs> so with basement arts then. What, what does that involve on, on a kind of regular day basis? Is it largely, are you booking artists and then moving in exhibitions and then moving them out? Are you cycling things quite fast? Does it, does it happen on a kind of casual rotating basis? Like how does it work? Um, yes to all of those things, okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, in short, in more, slightly more detail, um, it'd be interesting to know what, what doing this doesn't involve me during, during the, cause that'd be a very short list of things. Um, I mean, yes, I'm, you know, I, this is my house mm. and so, you know, I have to live in it with my family. So we're all in this together kind of thing. Mm. It wouldn't happen if everybody in the family didn't want it to happen. Mm. And to, to get me off the ground. Yes. It's been 11 years now of sort of fairly meticulous planning cycles mm. of things to happen. I mean, in the first year we did four things mm -hmm. by 2015, we were doing sort of like 10 projects a year mm. that became a bit too much, but I was working pretty much full time five days a week on it at that point. Mm. But then when I had to sort of like my, uh, 
personal um, sort of funding that I'd been given through charity to do that right now, I had to return to sort of full-time work mm. and do this again around um, around another job. So, you know, once again, it's sort of like contracted slightly, but not much, you know, still we're getting four, five, six projects done mm -hmm. uh, per year. Uh, and the, the, the sort of what those projects involve are extremely sort of like different. I mean, you know, we've done art fairs and exhibitions in other countries, mm -hmm. you know, that have taken us to, um, Jamestown in New York, mm -hmm. um, to Stockholm in Sweden, to mm -hmm. Dortmund in Germany, mm -hmm. Sluice Art Fair in Hackney, um, Liverpool Biennial, things like that. So we've had a really big, uh, sort of like run of things that we've done with other people in other cities. Mm -hmm. We also have a number of artists who we work with quite regularly, a guy called Kimball Bumstead, who was our first exhibiting artist here in the basement. Mm -hmm. And then over the course of 10 years, he's worked with us on things elsewhere, mm -hmm. uh, projects outside of the basement mm. over the course of the last 11 years. When we got to our 10th anniversary, we couldn't do um, an actual show because we were locked down. Yeah. But Kimball, who did the first show, we brought him back to do a 10th anniversary, literally to the day. Mm -hmm. um, so on for 2nd of April, 2021, mm -hmm. we were able to do another exhibition with him, but we created a virtual basement online. Right. Nice. Um, so we've worked virtually as well. We have a couple of gallery spaces online for mm -hmm. particular projects. I'm working on a school project at the moment that we also have a, a sort of virtual element to it with whatever we make with them. Mm -hmm. We've just completed a public sculpture project outside here mm -hmm. called Jacob's Ladder. Mm -hmm. uh, that's nine foot and seven tons of Tadcaster limestone. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, I even got to work a bit as sort of technician on, on that with the artist. Mm -hmm. So to say, you know, uh, what aspects of it do you get involved in? It's like mm -hmm. literally every aspect. Yeah. Yeah, it was really good as well because, you know, I I haven't made anything myself for quite a few years now. I, I kind of I'm kind of okay with that. I do get frustrated sometimes that I'd like to, but ultimately just this thing of it's working, working with in the area, isn't it? It's like well, I, I, I wanna do this, but I'm quite happy that I'm working in this area and I'm contributing towards it and I'm like I'm working in the well, sector for want of a better word, but you know, like the field that you're interested in. Yeah, yeah. And also sort of this thing as well of sort of like looking at what, you know, collective actions can sort of like bring about as well. I mean, mm. you know, the whole thing with Jacob's Ladder was just about taking a piece of land that was sitting unused and getting really unkempt and horrible mm -hmm. that literally sits outside this house mm. and doing something with it that turns it into a thing for the community. Mm. You know, my whole thing really for <laughs> art is is it's about this thing of a promoting it to people as a thing of enjoyment mm -hmm. of education and maybe even somewhere down the down the line if things improve employment as well mm. you know in doing jacob's ladder you know mm. raise a bit of money mm. hopefully we'll be able to pay a couple of people to do things as part of that mm -hmm. but you know we're always looking at ways in which you know maybe we can turn this around to become things that people see it as, you know, possibilities for practical employment as mm -hmm. well as mm -hmm. purely for, you know, enjoyment or educational purposes. Mm. It's one of the few things I think that allows people all of those things at once. Mm. I just see what I do here now over 10 years as being 
if I hadn't been involved on working on these projects with people, some things that other people suggest to me and I go, why I'd like to do that. Mm -hmm. Um, but quite a lot of the time me just going, right, I've got an idea to do this. Mm. Who, who wants to do this and see, you know, who works, wants to work with us. Mm -hmm. I mean, our program here across the year is, you know, kind of 50, 50 split. If you sort of like looked right across the 10 years between things that we've gone out and said, right, we've got an idea for a project, mm -hmm. let's do this. Mm -hmm. And the other half being people coming to us and going, I've got this idea for a project mm -hmm. and then sort of negotiating with them kind of we do it. Mm -hmm. um, I thought of a couple of things through that. So mm. I think, you know, the Jacob's Ladder thing made me think of ownership and space mm. and, you know, art a lot of the time, especially with like physical art, sculpture, um, installations and things, they are about taking space and having ownership. And you were talking about access. Um, and in terms of the access, I also wanted to ask, obviously you're, you're providing a way for the community to access artists, but are you also providing a space where the community have access to exhibition? Yeah. Even with some, even with the, um, the idea of the basement as a thing, which people are invited into, even though it's our home, people still are uncomfortable with that sometimes because mm. they're kind of like, you're inviting me into your house. You don't even know me, <laughs> uh, into a basement as well. All the things, I mean, that, how weird does, does that want to look? Um, so, you know, I'm not saying that anybody thinks I'm a serial filmer or anything like that. I mean, that first meeting me, but. There is still a sort of like a cautiousness towards why anyone would do such a thing. Yeah. You know, it seems like a crazy notion to them. And we've always had a fair amount of success with it from the outset. Uh -huh. You know, half of our audience, um, slightly more than half comes from the art scene mm -hmm. and the art scene is well adjusted to places that are not necessarily mm. places that art is meant to be seen, mm. things that move from one place to another on a regular basis. Yeah. So they're used to following around. They don't have to find us. Yeah. We've always had them right back to the very beginning, which I don't quite understand how this has worked. Almost half of the audience that are from locally who don't access a lot necessarily, mm -hmm. um, don't understand the ins and outs of the sort of the temporary space mm. art world and mm. things like that. But that is kind of like a. I wouldn't say a limited audience mm. because it's always changing. There's always new people from that 40% mm -hmm. and there's always returning visitors from previous things. Mm -hmm. So it does keep going in that way. But my thinking with Jacob's Ladder was that if we did something that was extremely public and mm. whilst the public haven't been initially involved in the making of the ladder itself, mm. the main sort of sculpture at the heart of it. There is those other two pieces of rock out there, mm. um, which we're going to be working with the community on for them to turn into benches mm -hmm. for people to sit there on. Mm -hmm. I mean, people are using the stone for just that yeah. now anyway. So even without anything being done to them, what we aimed for works. Mm. And so a lot of the problems that that space had, you know, of people misusing it, mm. people shooting up drugs on in, uh, all manner of bad behavior. Mm. Um, over the last four weeks since we actually got the lander upright in place. Mm. I'm going to tempt fate by saying this, but it's whittled down to very, very nominal. Mm. A bit of smashed glass one day next to one of the 
benches mm. has been about the height of it, which in comparison to what was on there mm. is absolutely nothing. Mm-hmm. I can kind of cope with that, with some mm. of the other stuff that I couldn't cope with being on there. Mm. And so it, it has changed it in that respect. Mm. And people have been involved, even if not practically to this point, because mm. Jacob's Ladder lay on its back at the edge of the road for a year. Mm. The artist was a bit cautious about this. I was nervous about it. You know, how this is going to go down. I was like, Colin, just trust me, keep let's, let's do this. <laughs> and uh, he admits now that, yeah, it was a really good thing to do because mm. of the year that he's worked there on Mondays, quite often with John, his technician, sometimes mm. with me there as well. He's had so many conversations with people and every single conversation has always been, oh, good luck with it. We really can't wait to see what it looks like when it's finished. Mm. And, um, well, now that it is finished and standing in place, I can safely say that people are appreciating it now that it's finished. Mm. Yeah, that's um, cool. You know, so they never had a hand in making, but as he was making it, they were talking to mm. Some of them would relate stories of like, oh, I remember when I used to work in a mine just outside Morley, a mm. uh, quarry just outside Morley. Mm. You know, so even though these people were quarry men rather than artists, they mm. can talk to Keith and John and myself about their time spent mm. working with stone as a material mm. Mm. and other people would just sort of like relate aspects of their lives you know around it as they talked mm. you know some happy ones some really really tragic ones as yeah. well it's like but the fact that it was just being there within the community mm. really sort of like allowed people to put it out there yeah. they were thinking of at the time because mm. of just folks there to talk to and this interested them yeah yeah I mean, going back to the, the sort of times list, like in, in my mind, I, I think in terms of, I think song came before speech, you know, we were mm-hmm. like, as a species, we were singing before we were speaking. And I think in a similar way, you know, you've got art comes before commerce become, you know, becomes, I think art's got to come before religion on some levels and you, you know, cause you need to build the altar to do the worship. So. <laughs> <laughs> Um, With the presence of cake paintings. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, you know, like our earliest sort of monuments are things like paint, you know, pictures of our hands and, well, prints of our hands and mm. things like that. Um, so, yeah, I think it, it makes a lot of sense. And it it does spark those conversations, you know, something that starts as an, an artwork or just a project, something that is just, you know, something that you start fiddling with and then it becomes something that you want to do something more with. And then it becomes like, I, th- I think... You know, once you get into that prospect of intent, then it then it becomes more artistic. I think maybe. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, because yeah, you go from molding the clay into like, okay, well, it's this. This is what I want it to be, and that's what it is. Mm-hmm. I think. Yeah. Okay, so let's go into uh, the other questions then. So we'll start off with COVID. You've mentioned kind of the lockdown and kind of having your anniversary through lockdown. So take us back into going into lockdown. Were you, and what happened sort of, at what point did you lock down? Did that increase your workload? Did it, you know, did it just create panic stations? Did you lock down early? Were you prepared for it? Like, how did that go for you? Um, I guess I was kind of prepared for it. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and I was surprised that the country didn't go into lockdown quickly did. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember I was at a conference in Liverpool on 
uh, 31st January of that year, 2020, I'd seen the news from my mum and dad's television mm. about what was going on because the hospital near them was being used mm. to get those original 19 patients from Wuhan mm-hmm. um, as a place to bring them to. Mm-hmm. Like, the big kid at the time, this doesn't look good. Mm. Um, having said that, you know, we still carried on until you know, basement stuff, uh, as well as, you know, Henry Moore Institute as well, until March of that year. And, and then we eventually saw I locked down. So the Lou Hazel will do an ad exhibition here, which had opened, I think two or three weeks prior to us actually saying, right, we can't do this anymore. Mm. Um, her work was then locked in the basement for the best part of the next year. Mm. So technically she had the longest basement arts project ex- exhibition ever. <laughs> it was on for a year, <laughs> just because people could only see it for about three or four weeks. Um, but it did then sort of like, we did sort of look at it and go, right. Okay. So this is where we are right now. Um, what do we do? So we did a sort of virtual tour online mm. where we walked mm. around using video cameras and what I did, she was at home in a ball and I interviewed her via zoom. Mm. We then pieced the video together. Mm. So it was like a walk around of the exhibition with mm. voiceovers by us, mm-hmm. um, as I asked her questions, then we did like a lunchtime conversation, which is a, a regular thing that we do here normally in person where everybody gathers around this table mm. and we just put it out to sort of 10 members of the public. Mm. To, get back to us and book a ticket for it and mm. we buy the artist long and the whoever's book tickets mm. with the public. Um, we sit around this table, I make everybody dinner. Mm. We talk about the exhibition and we go down and sort of have a tour of it downstairs. Mm. So we did one of them, but online. Mm-hmm. So if people, it'd be nice to think that people made their own lunches whilst they were mm. sat at home with the no access to the basement. But, you, know. <laughs> you could have done recipes for everyone. Yeah. Like we're all going to eat the same thing. Here's what you need and yeah. here's how to cook it. <laughs> yeah. So, um, and we did that and that seemed to work pretty well, actually. It was quite a good thing to do. Mm. And from that point, it was like, well, I can't sort of sit here and do nothing for however long this is going to last for now. And boy, mm. I'm glad I didn't because mm. I mean, two years down the line. So I set up what I called the, I have this thing online called the studio journal. Mm. So for artists who are working on things downstairs, mm-hmm. um, aside to their project page on the website, which has all the information on the project downstairs, there's also the studio journal, which they, if they want to submit mm. other things that they're working on at the time to show what they're doing, mm-hmm. they can do it there and I'll post it out. That's our kind of blog really, mm-hmm. um, is what they send to us for that and things that I put out. Mm. Um, so I did a special studio journal, lockdown journal, mm-hmm. which uh, was about 50, 50 episodes over, um, or posts over the course of a year and a half, but we really couldn't do anything together. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just put it out there to people who never even worked with us before. So mm. we had someone from America, we had someone from Germany, we had mm. quite a few different sort of like people who have never, ever come across before. Just send me stuff and say, here's a thing for the journal. Mm. And so each, every time something came out, mm. I would just put it out as a blog post and sort of network it on various mm. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and that kind of thing. It seemed to be quite a popular thing to do. Mm. People enjoyed it and made a lot of comments about it. Mm. Some people tried to sell work online. I never know how well that works, but, yeah. um, you know, they try to, they put price on things others as usual here didn't they just wanted to do stuff yeah 
It didn't even have to be about lockdown or anything either. Yeah. Sometimes people did sort of like diaries of their days here in drawings, yeah. things like that. Other people submitted videos, music videos they'd done or things like that. Mm. So it's quite one ugly varied thing. And so I think what that time did for us was for us to sort of see felt like when you go online and start doing things, what mm. works and what doesn't. Yeah. And so now coming out of that, I'm very much embedded in the real world right now because you know, we'd started Jacob's Ladder in 2019 with the intention that it might take perhaps a year and a half to do. Mm. Uh, three years later, mm. we've only just finished it now. Mm. So it's been getting back out and get back on with those things that we sort of said goodbye to in 2019 for a while yeah, yeah. and doing that. But looking at it, I will be sort of looking at, okay, so doing online galleries worked in this way. Mm. So let's keep that. Mm. Let's work out how to use that best next. We don't need it, but it's a, a nice, useful adjunct to what we do here. Mm. And I think this comes to the heart of just how I feel about, you know, part as a thing is that it's a thing that people do want to and need to be together to enjoy part of, you know, I mean, I can read books about art, I can look at it in books, I can go to galleries and look at it mm. but ultimately something happens when you're sort of in that in a room with someone mm. looking at something perhaps you've never thought about before or that you don't even understand in that moment mm. and you then make a comment to someone that's it you can be you can be chatting about all sorts of things for the next two three hours and whatever mm. and that does regularly happen here mm. so you know it's really is a sort of thing that you just can't the price on mm. Uh, that kind of interaction. Mm. I mean, you kind of answered it, but has has COVID changed the way that you're working? I suppose it's given you sort of new sets of skills and new openings and new connections, but it's, yeah, I don't see it. You know, you, you're looking to go back to how you were working, aren't you, really? On the whole, yeah. 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 Uh, but I would say, sort of like, you know, just keeping those sort of, those things that I felt really were going, mm. right, okay, we'll integrate this into how we work in the future. Mm -hmm. You know, so there will be elements that we've, you know, really learned from, from COVID about how you, you know, how you can adapt things mm. and also equally how you, the certain things that you can't adapt, mm. you know, one of those things is the nature of just conversation around mm. things of an art nature or societal or political nature, even. Mm. I mean, the first two shows that we did after lockdown were highly Actually, first three shows were highly political mm. for various reasons. Mm. You know, they address the nature of of, of monuments, of protest, mm. of, of environment. Mm. You know, these were things that quite obviously had been on people's mind. And so, mm. um, in actual fact, those three projects had all begun before mm -hmm. COVID, mm -hmm. but developed over COVID into something that they weren't originally. Yeah. The, the, the initial concepts were already there, but by the time we actually got to do them. Yeah. The world had changed. The world had changed. Yeah. Kind of centered these projects. Mm. They'd become much more so like focused on the sort of the problems of the here and now, mm. as mm. opposed to sort of like almost sort of like historical looking back on things. Yeah. Or, or sort of more abstract questions become kind of more immediate and more concrete of like, well, oh, well, we're actually dealing with this or, you know, or we have to think about this now. Absolutely. And, and yeah. We have to think about it in a different way because this is happening. Yeah. Yeah. 
Okay, so we'll do Brexit. <laughs> um, so we'll start with the fun one. Um, so has, uh, I mean, this is something I've not mentioned on a recording for a bit, but other people have sort of said, um, and especially kind of nearer the time, that it's quite difficult to kind of uh, separate Brexit and COVID because they were kind of happening at the same mm -hmm. time. But I mean, from your experience, since we Brexited, have you noticed any change in how you're working? Has it affected your work? And has the change been, you know, for the good, for the worse? Has there been a mixed bag? Like, what, how's Brexit affected your working? I don't think Brexit has affected my working. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, the majority of what I do is based not just here in the UK, but is based here in <laughs> East and South Leeds. <laughs> uh, the opportunities to go away and do things far afield mm. are rare mm. for the for the fact that, you know, I just don't have time to mm. sort of like do major projects in other countries. Mm. And also, you know, because, you know, the, the, the opportunities for that kind of thing, whilst they need to be there, I do want the main focus of what I do to be on this community here. Mm -hmm. And the rest of it is a sort of like a, uh, an extension of what we do centrally. Mm -hmm. And weirdly, the things that we have done as projects in other countries I've never been involved in countries where they part Europe anyway. Mm. Um, you know, we did uh, you know, the two gallery shows in Jamestown in New York. Mm. So nothing different there about how things are now and how things were when we did that project. Mm. Equally, um, Stockholm, mm. I guess recently actually Dortmund. Mm. Um, but again, because I haven't been part of doing things, things before that point, I don't know what it was like. Mm. One thing I can say for sure, and this is uh, not really to do with Brexit, but I guess it's more to do with um, climate than anything, mm -hmm. is how the way that we're kind of like persuaded to do things because of financial aspects mm. is really not good environmentally. Mm. Uh, I mean, just looking now at the summer holidays at the expense of traveling by train anywhere, mm. I was looking at the idea of going to finally, mm. uh, within the month mm. and in actual fact, it'd be less for me to hire a car to get five of us out there than it would to me yeah. to get a train there and back, yeah. you know, and equally like going to do a project in Dortmund, um, because it was just at the end of COVID, I kind of like, and they asked me to do this project and I was like, okay, yeah. And I, because of the way it was with COVID, it's like, do I really want to get on a plane? Mm. And I looked at it and actually it turned out that despite um, Dortmund being our twin city of Leeds, mm. there's no uh, flights from Leeds, Bradford. To yeah. You'd have to go to Manchester for that. Mm. So there's a thing of like putting on loads of extra travel onto mm. that. So I said to the people who were sort of like, you know, funding me to go and do this, I sort of said it would be an opportunity to see if I could do the journey by train. Mm. And they agreed to that. Mm. It was quite expensive, should we say, mm. to do that. Because mm. you think you can probably get a plane for less than that card. You know, it's like, yeah, I mean, at the time. Financially, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The actual expense of the plane flight is way more than any money you're spending. <laughs> yeah, yeah, quite. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so it was like, you know, that really sort of like brought it home to me. It's like, you know, if I'd gone just about it, just doing the cheap way, Mm. as many people do, mm. and that's because our finances 
keep mm. us that way. Mm. Uh, we don't have the option to go, mm. I don't mind spending this amount of money on that and just doing it to save the environment. Then it would have been, uh, you know, financially better, mm. environmentally, mm. you know, part of this sort of continuing catastrophe that we see, mm. uh, you know, and going overland on train mm. to Dortmund was quite an experience, mm. uh, hatefully, mm. anyway. Um, and I was a little bit, I have to admit, I was a little bit paranoid about flying at the time because of that whole thing that mm. I hadn't had COVID. Ironically, I did then get it before I went away. Yeah. And so luckily it was over and I was in that point going, well, I, I'm not going to get it again now. Yeah. If that's a... <laughs> um, so I can probably justify that I can go now. Yeah. Uh, because of that. Um, so I, I was nervous about going for so many reasons, mm. that being one of them. Mm. But in the end, it was sort of like, it was an interesting thing to then write about afterwards as well with us of the blog that I wrote for uh, Leeds City Council and stuff about traveling from Leeds to mm. Dortmund, mm. And, you know, and talking about the, some of the uh, travel aspects of that. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's the, you know, you, you get people who say, you know, it's all about the, the, the travel, mm. like the travels, the experience. It's like, they're, they're not people who are used to travel instead because <laughs> travel's not an experience. If it's an experience, it's an awful one. But like, you know, if you're doing, if you do things at a slower pace and at a slower rate, then you are like the travel is, the journey is part of that, that process. And it, it can be enjoyable because you're spending the time looking at the places that you're going through rather than just trying to speed past them and get to yeah. the destination. Um, so we'll go straight on to climate change then. So. Mm. In terms of the climate, are you able within your work, like what, what can you do within your work or within your work practices to kind of mitigate and adapt to climate change? Like, is it something that is, I, I mean, it sounds like it is something that's in the forefront of your mind anyway, mm. but is it kind of designed, is it built into your work, into your own work? And, uh, I suppose with the, you know, the day job with, uh, the Henry Moore Institute, like what, what is their kind of approach to it at the moment do they do they have anything climate related i mean obviously i would think they would because the city is has declared a climate emergency so yeah they do um i couldn't go into detail about their their policies on that i know that there there's various things that they you know, mm -hmm. they're looking at mm -hmm. including things about sort of like the sort of like the heating and insulation things mm -hmm. and um solar panels stuff yeah. like that those kind of things um, I don't know the ins and outs of their policies, but yes, they are doing stuff to, mm. um, to tackle it. Um, here it's kind of like, it's kind of baked into what we do by, by necessity, really. Mm -hmm. Um, well, you are about the local, you know, that's the key element, isn't it? So yeah, we are, but I mean, you know, everything that we do isn't local. I mean, you know, uh, even the exhibitions that we do here, mm quite often are by people from outside of the city. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, so we are, you know, bringing people in sometimes mm. from other countries as mm. well. Um, uh, but I would say that it's always done in such a way as because we have nobody mm. to do things in, mm. um, that we sort of take it upon ourselves, you know, along with the artists, they're right. What's the most financially easiest way to do that? You know, mm. it's a uh, booking train tickets to hawk your work across the country mm. a year in advance just so that you can get it cheaply mm. and that's how we do it mm. uh you know artists typically 
don't have cars as well, many of them. Mm. Uh, a lot of them are young as well. We have partly why they don't have cars. So there's that thing of, because I don't have a car, mm. because the project doesn't have any money, mm. we go, right, what is the, you know, the, the cheapest yet most effective way to do what we want. Yeah. It's like ev everything has to actually be thought about. There's no sort of immediate assumptions of, oh, but well, they just bring their van, they load the van and then they bring it into the cargo bay and they unload it and they put it in the gallery and it's yeah. fine. That's how it all happens. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's none of that here. I mean, I suppose, I suppose say the most sort of like, you know, environmentally dubious thing that we've done is to create Jacob's ladder. Yeah. You know, the quarry. Big piece of stone that you yeah. dragged across. Yeah. Uh, but in reality for us, it was the transportation for that, mm. which wasn't uh, too too bad because mm. it only came from literally down the road. Mm. Um, and it's not like, it's not a uh, a temporary, it's a permanent fixture. Yeah, forever. Yeah, yeah. Uh, ah, beastin'. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Reminds me of that uh, quote from Nevermind the Buzzcocks of someone saying about the man who invented the Manchester sound. <laughs> and this is what's that, the sound of breaking glass. Um, uh, um, stolen car radios and running feet police solaries or whatever it was. <laughs> yeah, but that's the sound we all recognise. <laughs> I remember going to see, I think it was Jamiroquai at the MEN um, Manchester Evening News Arena. Oh, yeah. And we'd parked up. And just as we got out of the car, this van pulled up by this other van and about four lads got out, broke into the back of this van, like whipped everything into the other van and then drove off in the space of about like two minutes or whatever. And it was just like, what? <laughs> That's not supposed to happen. And then, and then like full that I was, you know, I like called it in, called the police and then, you know, I've got the police They're like chasing me around Manchester evening news arena to try and get a witness statement. I'm like, I'm here to see a gig. Like, <laughs> they want to be talking to you for 20 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> then Jamiroquai comes on stage, stage and says, well, it's an acoustic gig tonight. <laughs> All my kit's been nicked. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, so we were on climate change, weren't we? I, I think we kind of covered that. So, unless there's anything else that you want to kind of uh, say about it. Oh, yeah, yeah. It was just a, sort of the Jacob's Ladder thing. You know, mm. we sort of established that that was, you know, that it's a permanent thing. Mm. Transport costs were low, then mm. more sort of emissions costs low and things like that. And also in terms of actually quarrying the material, mm. you know, because quarrying, when you look at it's like open cast quarrying mm. in places like Italy, it's ruining the landscape mm. and stuff. You know, in actual fact, we took this from a scrap pile mm. in the end. Mm. So it was a piece of, of rock that was useful to no one else and mm had -hmm. already been quarried. Mm. Uh, we just found a way to make use of it. Mm. So, you know, even with something like that, I don't see that sort of like, you know, we took, we did too much that could be seen as being environmentally catastrophic. Well, yeah, you reclaimed and you upcycled. Upcycled, that's a good word. Yeah, I like that. Have you ever seen um, a film by Anya Sparda called The Gleaners and I? No. It's really good. I watched it when I was doing my course. And it's, um, so she'd made, like, she was part of the French New Wave. Oh, yeah. Um, and this is a documentary she's made when she's much older. And she's looking at sort of the history of gleaners in France, people that would go around and they would just pick up, you know, 
the bits of fruit that were left at the end or the misshapen vegetables mm -hmm. and that kind of thing and like the whole culture of that and how she sort of relates to that of just you know it's like the whole sort of found objects art thing as well of like well we take something and we'll you know rather than ripping something out we'll take something that's wasted and turn it into something so i think that's uh, I, I think you'd enjoy the film it's it's worth a watch i'll have to look, look at it yeah. social media is it something that you find beneficial so from the point of view of the amount of time that you have to put into social media if you do put any time into it um does it give a good return on investment do you feel that like you know those Facebook posts really do make a difference or the website really does make a difference. Mm -hmm. Like how, how do you see it? So interesting. I was having a, a conversation yesterday with Kimball Bumstead, the artist who I was talking about that did the first show in our 10th mm -hmm. anniversary show here yesterday, who sort of like said how he was, he'd signed up for, uh, Vero, mm -hmm. which is a new sort of like social media app. And we were, there was a little bit of a sort of conversation going on on, on Facebook post about Vero, mm. about the, the sort of the, the use of mm. all of these forms of social media and, mm -hmm. you know, are they just time thieves? Mm. Um, or, you know, I'm not, you know, wasn't necessarily sure about the sort of valid, the validity of them. Mm. I mean, one of the things about social media, I think is that, you know, People go to social media looking for validation in some way. Yeah. There was a point where social media questions used to come up on funding, sort of like reports, um, you know, about your, your audience reach kind of thing. Mm. You tend not to find that now. In actual fact, some places say don't include your social media figures in mm. things, which I think, you know, both sides are a little bit sort of missing the point with that because I think. So long as you don't place too much importance on mm. social media, it can be of use to you. Mm -hmm. So long as you treat it as just as a thing of, you know, keeping people informed about what you're doing, mm. I think that's a really useful and good thing to do because once mm. again, it puts that sort of personal, it puts a face to something which doesn't have one originally. Yeah. I mean, you know, in, in my discussion with this artist yesterday, you know, he was saying about, you know, the idea of, you know, it's just to get together and, you know, mm. have face-to-face -face conversations like we always used to, you know, that's the thing that he misses. Mm. And no. I, I totally agree with that. You know, there's nothing that can be gained through social media that you wouldn't gain 10 times more if we were just able to get each other's company, I think sometimes. Mm. But that said, as you point out, it's a little bit become like a work tool now. Mm. I think that's because a lot of things advertise at us through it. Through mm. us. Mm. And that was kind of like what led me to Vero. Mm. And ultimately then I and several of the people who said, oh, I found this mm. led Kimball to Vero, for instance, mm. because it's got no adverts on it. Mm. So at the moment it's sort of like its reach is particularly limited. Mm. But that said, it's quite a nice platform. Mm. You can look at images in a really nice format on it. Mm. It's quite easy to use. And I think. You know, again, they are just these things that if like all of the others, your Twitters and your Instagrams, things like that, mm. so long as you just treat them as things to have those kind of conversations with people about your work, it'll be really good for you. Mm. Just sort of don't, don't expect sales through it. Mm. Cause again, unless you're a company, mm. you're not going to get sales through or it. Or a shit hot marketer. Or yeah. yeah. Or a genius marketer. Yes. 
Yeah, I'm sure people can. I'm not sure I could. Mm. Um, but I think I like it and I don't. I mean, I go through periods where I try not to look at it at all mm. because especially when political things happen, because you know that every single thing mm. is going to get subsumed by whatever the politics of the time is. Yeah, and everything uh, everything you're going to be shown is all basically machine-picked to get the most extreme reaction out of you. Yeah, yeah. So it becomes... <laughs> so that you will engage. Yeah. yeah. And that's an extremely unedifying way to work mm. because it constantly sort of promotes the lowest common denominator. It's kind of like having your own personal grime or worm tongue. Sort of going in. <laughs> you know, this has happened and this and these persons said this and this person said this and how do you feel about that? What do you think? Yeah, yeah, Absolutely. And before you know it, you've, you know, you've got a massive argument on yeah. your hands with <laughs> someone or something who may or may not be what they seem to be on the yeah. internet. You just don't know. We've done a couple of exhibitions here, which I think you could describe the content as being contentious. Mm. Uh, you know, one a local issue, one a more sort of, well, actually no, three particular ones spring to mind. Mm. The other two being much more sort of uh, international issues. Mm. And whenever you see these things sort of like being played out as discussions mm. online, on mm. social media, the, the argument is vitriolic. Mm. You know, people behave in a way on social media that they wouldn't do face-to-face. -face. Yeah, it's the next extreme from being in a car, isn't it? It's like the next step up from road rage, that extra distance from yeah. the actual person. It's like, oh, well, you don't even exist as a person. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> But when we looked at the sort of like the openings that we had for these exhibitions, mm. there was people from very, very different points of view that came to mm. them. Mm. And in particular, one of these exhibitions. And as soon as people got in the room, sort of like actually talking about it, no matter what side they came from, mm. the arguments, the heat went out of it. Mm. And actual fact, people then started to converge yeah. really quite, you know, it was, you know, Definitely a sort of like a debate of yeah. really yeah. firm debate. Yeah, and get into the details, but not in a sort of I'm gonna kill you way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The the vitriol had gone out of it. Yeah. It was you know, the, the unpersonable personal attacks mm. that they come up with social media just weren't there when you mm. when you then translate it into a real life scenario. Mm. You know, so one of these subjects, for instance, was a subject that was debated really loads online. Mm. And it was always such negative debating from all sides, really, because each would sort of like pick out the faults with each other, a very political thing to do, mm. pick out the faults with each other's arguments rather than focusing on, you know, where they might be thinking wrong themselves. Mm. Never that kind of debate. It's mm. always one or the other. Mm. It's much more nuanced when you get people in the room together mm. and then they start sort of like seeing maybe it's through body language or something like that mm. as well that, oh, actually, I had cause of that. Mm. And then you see sort of like, I wouldn't say attitudes change, because I think, you know, people quite often make up their minds and then stick with that forever. Mm. But you can certainly see them taking more consideration over mm. the way people are describing the position that they come from mm. when they stood opposite them. Yeah, well, I mean, it's, it's totally different to deal with an actual person than, you know, a, a virtual thing. <laughs> um, I mean, it makes me think as well of... Um, you know, going back to like Mary Whitehouse and sort of when the, the, you know, she'd be on the TV or whatever and there'd be complaints about this, that and the other. And, you know, a lot of the counter argument was kind of like, just turn it off, turn it over, 
There's four other channels. <laughs> like, yeah. why, why are you getting irate about this program? Just turn it over. And that that's something that's disappeared out the window. But I think as well, because you've got, we want this, you know, when we go on the device, you kind of want, because it is anger and that's a boundary reaction. And I mm. think there's that sort of, you know, when you're not seeing things that are making you happy, you've seen like, you know, be, be, in a scroll, you've seen 10 things which are there to trigger you. Yeah, yeah. Already before you actually, actually engage with anything. <laughs> so you're already like primed to be like, I'm going to shout at everybody. Yeah. So absolutely. then there's something in that because you can't, you know, you never hear from anyone who just, just turn it off. Don't look at it. Take it off your phone. Stop, stop going on it. If it's making you angry, <laughs> like, no, I must keep doing the thing that makes me angry. Yeah. yeah. It's a weird position. We'll move on to UVI. So universal basic income. If uh, there was a universal basic income, would you uh, still be doing what you're doing? Uh, if you would still be doing what you're doing, would you be doing it in the same way? Like, how would a universal basic income, universal basic basic income, change things for you? Yes, it would. Mm. Yes, I would still do my paid job, mm -hmm. but I would do it less. Mm -hmm. um, I had a period where I was working five days as basement because I've been getting some money from a charity to fund me to stay at home and do basement stuff. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't need to give up any work to get that uh, funding, but I said, no, I'm going to, for the time that I've got it, I'm going to give up five, uh, four or five days, mm -hmm. about the three days rather. I'm just going to work two. Mm -hmm. I worked five days as basement and two at my Henry Moore job. Mm -hmm. After three years, the funding came to an end. Luckily, I got the job back. The one that I'd come out of at Henry Moore Institute because somebody left just at the point that I was coming out of that period. So yeah. I was like, I was able to go Nice back. timing here. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, so I was extremely lucky at that point, which kind of like sort of shows the sort of the delicacy mm. with which life hangs in a knife edge, mm. you know, that that could very easily have tipped another way. Mm. And if I'd gone into another job, would it be the kind of job that allowed me to um, carry on doing this? Mm. Is that, as I said before, like before we started doing this interview about, you know, the idea of being 50 odd and working in a, mm. in a highly paced job in a, in a supermarket or mm. whatever it might be, mm. the idea that you would then have the presence of mind at the end of the day to then mm. do something else mm. is really unlikely mm. so i'm kind of like uh you know grateful for the way for the way that turned out and but i think that now if the opportunity came i still wouldn't entirely give up my job if you know if i was able to live happily on the universal basic income i still wouldn't give it up mm. i would like to do ideally two days again mm. because i think but somebody doing a job in the position that I do here that I feel that I do for my community mm. in the arts needs to maintain a presence within other things as well. Mm -hmm. That's how you sort of like, you kind of trade positions. Me being there here and there gives people here access to there as well. Mm. It also gives people over there access to here. Mm. And so I think just that little crossover, I, I would keep it on. Solely for that, I you know, because mm. also I do just like working in public, mm. you know, in the public realm, as it were. Mm. I do it all the time here. Mm. 
I do all the time. Then I've done it all my life as well. Mm. Whether it be working in bookshops and supermarkets to whatever it is, I've done arts administrator one year for mm. for a few years at Arts of Trinity, mm. receptionist at Henry War Institute. I see them as all being they should all be beneficial to one another. Mm. I mean, from the perspective of basement arts, mm. I mean, I would assume that, you know, if there's a universal basic income, people are not struggling so much on benefits in more, as they like to say, deprived areas, mm. um, and also have more free time. So ideally, you know, it should be cleaner and more visit more visitors here. So, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, so I, I mean, you know, and through that, I mean, do you, does it generate any revenue? Do you, do you try and like, do you have anything to fund it? Is it self-funded at all? Or is it just, yeah. We and the artists take on the costs of individual things most of yeah. the time. When we have big projects, we try and sometimes are successful at getting funding. Mm -hmm. We've recently had funding through the Anymore Foundation. We've quite often had funding through Leeds Inspired. Mm. I'm just writing an arts council one at the moment. Mm -hmm. um, we've had an arts council once in the past. And various other things like Leeds Art Fund, mm. Leeds Phil and Leeds places like that. Um, do you do any crowdfunding or patrons? We did crowdfunding to get to America. Yeah. That we did that. Yeah. But again, I never knew how I felt about that at the time. I think having spoken to some of the people who donated, in that time, but I feel better about it now than I did at the time, yeah. because one of the things that I've always sort of really tried to do is keep everything free to everybody who comes here, mm -hmm. whether it's the artists uh, or visitors, that it's always free to them. So the idea of thinking, oh, I'd donate to this. Mm. But then people said to me afterwards, well, we didn't mind donating because we wanted to see it be successful. Yeah. And it's a donation, you know, it's completely mm -hmm. voluntary so yeah. to them to... I, I mean, you know, sometimes there is the kind of shaking jar, like here's his donate to me. Well, well, this is it. This is like, you know, these companies that, you know, when you go to their checkouts and they go, will you round up to a pound yeah. when you've just spent like 32p or yeah. something? Will Do you, you want to spend a bit more? It's for charity. Yeah. Like, and then they go, oh, I'm a bad person if I don't then, you mean? Yeah. 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 And then they go, look what we donated to charity. This yeah. year. It's like, we didn't. Yeah. You got everybody else, yeah. To it and they said you gave it. it doesn't work like that. So I'd always viewed it a little bit like that, I think. But mm. then from having those kind of conversations with people, I was like, well, actually, no, because they genuinely say to me, the one thing that I hope doesn't happen is that people who don't have money, mm. oh, yes, I want it to happen. And put yeah, it in. yeah. And that I hope doesn't happen. Mm. But you know, they should be able to donate as well. Is the thing. It's like it. Donations shouldn't be exclusionary either. It oh, shouldn't yeah. be like, well, I haven't got much, but you know, every every penny helps. It's like, well, you know, mm. it's that whole thing of, well, the proportion of my donation is way bigger than the proportion of their donation because they can afford it and I can't. So yeah. So we'll go to the change question. So I suppose it's similar to UBI in a way, um, but the question is so. If you could change any three things, and I would say consider this for both roles, uh, any three things about your work, um, so you can be as, as wild or as conservative as you want with this, um, they can be realistic or unrealistic, or it could be just everything's perfect. What three things would you change about your work if you could? Oh, you've stuck me with that one. Um, I mean, this is it. I think I'm not sure, apart from the idea of working 
less at one thing to allow me to work within the community more. Mm. I don't think I would change things. Mm. Do you think you've got the right work-life balance? Then? No, no, not no. at all. <laughs> because, you know. Is it biased more towards the paid work than sort of the work that you want to be doing or? It's biased towards the paid work because the paid work I have to do to. To fund everything else, yeah. Funding everything else and mm. keep roof over my head, keep mm. children's mouths, etc. Mm. Mm. I hate money. Mm. Um, if we, uh, there's, there's something I'd change mm. and I'll go wildly up, um, you know, wildly out there with this one and say, I'd get rid of money. Mm. You know, if, there was, if we could find a way of doing anything that didn't involve money at all, mm. I would do it. Mm. Uh, it would make me happy to not have to consider money as a thing. Mm. You know, that sort of question thrown up by Bill Drummond when he sort of him and the KLF burned a million quid on the mm. Scottish Island and, mm. you know, in his appearance on that show afterwards, the Irish chat show thing, you know, and his sort of thinks about, well, because I burned that million quid, were there any less apples growing on trees? Were there less, mm. less of that happened? The answer is no, but as long as the money exists and they say, we well, could have given it to charity, but yeah, once they've used that, what do they need? They then need more mm. money. Mm. And this is the kind of like the wage inflation spiral that they're kind of talking about. Now mm. it doesn't matter how much you do things because of the presence of money within the system. Uh, you do one thing to that, that over there will increase over there mm. and you're always getting less there, more there, mm. more there, less there. But it just keeps on going. You know, at the moment, there is no answer to a capitalist system. Mm. And, you know, that's what we have to work with. And until someone can come up with an option, mm. you know, if people say, well, I'm anti-capitalist or whatever, or, you know, would I consider myself anti-capitalist? Um, you know, I work a lot for nothing and, you know, <laughs> I don't like systems of structure and things like that. Mm. Um, but. I would only say the only point I would be anti-capitalist as is if we could sort of get to a point where there was a workable alternative that we could get right now is a point that we can change. Mm. Unfortunately, it's sort of, yeah, it's not showing that way at the moment, but I sort of, I keep optimistic. Ultimately, sort of like money will never be my goal. Mm. Um, but the ability to do things. I would like more. I'd like a nice house. I'd like, mm. you know, I'd like to be able to get away on the boldly, but I can't do that. Mm. Never really been able to do that. Mm. Now is no different to the past, really. Mm. But who knows? I mean, if, you know, we had an, an alternative option, mm. those things might be possible. Once you see an end to poverty, you can, you can actually start to imagine. Mm. Uh, by which I mean real poverty. I mean, I'm not in real poverty. I've got mm. a house. I can keep the food coming and stuff. Mm. But that's precarious still. Mm, mm. But you know, as as I've you know, whilst I've been working on these projects outdoors here, mm. and the kind of things that you see, it's like, yeah, you know, this. So long as this kind of thing mm. continues, mm. you know, then there's really a long way before you can even start to think mm. positively about those kind of systems that we would change. Mm. So, yeah, I get. I guess you know, get rid of money. That would be my ideal change mm. probably the only one out of kind of <laughs> like, like projects what about a bigger space an exhibition yeah, space nice, yeah, yeah. Mm. yeah i mean um again not essential though no but i mean say say you won the lottery and you've got you're like okay well this place is a known quantity i mean would you ever sort of like do the whole house so it <laughs> all became you know, like an art space. Yeah, that yeah, that'd be great. Mm. You know, to run it as a project with living studios. Mm. 
things like that. Mm. Yeah, I'd love to do something like that, I suppose. Yeah. yeah. But then it kind of, it, it potentially spoils it, doesn't it, when you've got the money there? Because money is kind of, in a lot of ways, it's anti-creative. Because it's just like, well, look in the phone book and find the guy that does that or the yeah. thing that does that. Like, you know, go go and, you know, just buy something rather than, okay, well, we've got this and we've got this. What can we do with these things? Like, what <laughs> we have nothing else. We've just got these. What can we do? We're going back to the removal of money as a system here. All mm. has been, you know, <laughs> the ideal thing that you could do is to remove money from mm. the process. Mm. Because it's that and the change thing. Mm. I always think that if, if I did sort of do a bigger space, you know, mm. you know, have access to a bigger space, the people probably just find it's like a bigger version of our crusty, decaying basement. Mm. I don't think it'd ever go down the white wall because it's like it already exists. What do you think about? I mean, this is just for my own interest, the sort of divergent tangent, but the the sort of like a. Um, what do I want to use here? Like a permanence of art. Like, should should it be more, should it be ephemeral? Should it be something that is that, you know, like a castle of sand of like, should it, should it fade away? Should it last forever? Or is it, is that related to the piece of how that should work? I mean, because obviously you've had a lot of work here over the years and you could have spent all the time, like, you know, relentlessly photographing everything to ultimately have this huge curated or coffee table book of, you know, the basement art project in Leeds from such and such to such and such. It was such a time and look at these glossy images. Yeah. Like, but that doesn't seem to be what you're doing. It seems to be like, oh, what's an interesting thing? Let's have an interesting thing, have that go on. And then what's another interesting thing? Mm -hmm. So there seems to be this turnover of like things changing and things being different. Like, um, yeah, what's your sort of thoughts and feelings on that? We have done a couple of books over the years. One of them's up there. Mm -hmm where we've gone down the glossy image route and, mm -hmm. you know, essays about the exhibitions of Maine. Mm -hmm. We do that for every exhibition on the internet anyway. Mm. I mean, you know, for every exhibition we've done over the 11 years, mm. there's documentation, words and pictures mm. online about it. Um, so we do document everything quite sort of, uh, you know, to quite a degree. Um, do you not curate that at all though? Is that sort of... Yeah. Does it just kind of happen or like, have you got it quite carefully curated? I tend to write about pretty much every exhibition. Mm -hmm. I write a piece on everything that we do. Mm -hmm. The studio journal online allows the artists to write their sort of interpretations mm -hmm. of things and talk about things that they want to. Mm -hmm. So both go on there. Mm -hmm. um, but then equally, I've sort of like quite often we've managed to get writers in to write about things as well mm -hmm. so that we all quite regularly get sort of like viewpoints from mm. other artists or the curators or the writers mm -hmm. about what it's that we're doing. Um, so I think all of those approaches, you know, that we do on a regular basis. Um, I had this sort of like question with one artist that worked here one year, uh, Pippa Eason, her, her project downstairs sort of like involved lots of these sort of like objects that were made with gold chains and ropes mm. and the things bundled together and then ultimately about five and a half kilograms of glitter thrown everywhere. Sort of gold and pink glitter, which a lot of it's still down there. Now mm. you, know, you can see it in the sort of hanging in cobwebs and corners mm. and things, trace of this. And that, again, that's one of the other things about downstairs is that 
looking around the walls, I know exactly what remnants are there from which artists. Mm -hmm. So there is a bit of a sort of documentation going on mm. as well. Mm. Uh, the bits that we didn't get rid of, because I always say to people, is there anything from past exhibitions, you know, that marks on walls or anything that you're likely to get rid of, mm. do not get any weight. And always, you know, then I have to leave it, I'll work around it. Mm. And sometimes they, you get down there to go, oh, they've worked with it. Mm. And it's, suddenly it's become um, part of their own work where they, mm. what, what they, what was already there into what they've done. Mm -hmm. uh, this exhibition that's currently on at the moment by Sharon McDonald as a prime example of that. Mm. She's really used sort of things down there to confuse people as to what they're looking at. So mm -hmm. they're going, I reckon that from, recognize that from Simon and Ursula's exhibition. Mm. And it's still here on the floor in this one. <laughs> What's going on? <laughs> I have lots of objects they'd never seen before because they came from somewhere else that Sharon has brought along and added mm. to it. So, so is this an artwork or is this just object? <laughs> then there's the objects themselves, you know, which are these sort of paintings mm. where she's literally sort of like recreated a section of the wall. They mm. hold the painting over the section of the wall itself. Mm. There's some frame pieces that, you know, you look and go, ah, oh, that's a frame piece. I know that's a work. Mm. But then there's certain works that are almost hidden. Mm. They're not the major, you know, main sections mm. of the wall. But, mm. You know, they look like they're hiding away from you because they match the wall behind them. Mm -hmm. You know, so in, in that respect, the walls downstairs, downstairs and the floors and the cobwebs are a documentation of sorts as well. Mm. Uh, but I remember having this conversation with Pippa about her work and saying, so every time you make something, once you've exhibited it, mm. your thing then is to take it back to the studio and start taking it apart and making new stuff out of it. Mm -hmm. Now that comes from a financial thing. Mm -hmm. You know, well, best way to do it is to reuse what I've got. Mm. It's cheaper. Probably environmentally, it's less damaging as well, actually. Mm. But I was saying that creates a problem, doesn't it? Then about how your work is seen in history, it only becomes a photograph. Mm. And the fact that we've got your photographs of your work on mm. the, on the website is mm. the only record of that ever having happened. Mm. And so I said to her, I said, so what would make you go? That piece of work is finished and go nowhere else. Mm. She said, like, don't know. I said, so if we said we'll buy it from you, mm. would you go? Well, okay. I'll stop that. You can have that. Mm. So we bought it off her. <laughs> I hope we gave her a good price for it because mm. we, like a lot of artists here, were like, how do you price this kind of stuff? Mm. That in itself is very difficult. But, you know, she was like, oh, okay then. I said, mm. all right, we'll buy it off you then. Mm. And she went, okay. So I paid her and that was it. It's like, so that's a one item that mm. exists from that exhibition. Nothing else does anymore. Mm. So, you know, documenting things now, I think we're in a difficult period because we can look back on Da Vinci and go, you know, it has to be kept under really dark lights and, mm. and temperature and heat control, you know, heat control and humidity controlled rooms mm. to look at this thing. Mm. But it is kind of, not all of it, but some of it amazing to look back and go, mm. you know, wow, that is a sense of our history there and that. Mm. How will we look at this point in our history and go, majority of what we did doesn't exist anymore. Mm. You know, it looks like a blip in history where it's missing. Mm. So I don't know. I mean, I like the fact that thing, historical stuff exists and I think it's important that it does. Mm. I think we also need to sort of like address how we store it mm. and how we deal with it now in the present as well, where work is ephemeral, as you say. Mm. It's making me think of like, you know, sort of stores of, um, like museums and art galleries and stuff as being like, you know, they're kind of their version of sheds 
fanatics. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's just like, we've, I know I've got something in there. I don't know where it is. It's somewhere in there. It's piled around. At some point, I'm going to have to go in and sort it out. Like, yeah. And there's huge warehouses that are basically that. <laughs> well, Francis Bacon's studios, one of the example of that, where, you know, it was left when he died, how it yeah. was, it was an absolute mess. And mm. it was like, it was just rubbish everywhere, stacked up in all the corners. Mm. Barely rooms to walk around, rooms to walk around in. Mm. And in the end, what they did was they built a gallery in Ireland, the dimensions of his room, mm. and then replaced it all with a map of where everything was. Mm placed all the objects so they could then sort of like, you know, get rid of this building and mm. they'll put green, blue plaque on it mm -hmm. and say Francis Bacon Studios here. Mm. I transferred the whole thing to this gallery in Ireland. So now how his gallery was at the moment he died, how his studio was the moment he died is now a gallery. It's, it's now art. exactly the same bit <laughs> <that> the art itself. <laughs> I mean, there was a lot of things about Francis Bacon's sort of like career that make people go, really? <laughs> but, you know, that kind of like really adds up, you know, some mm. of those sort of points and there's, you know, the sort of the, the honesty of it all, or the, mm. or the lack of honesty in it. It's, am I looking at artwork? Am I looking at a studio? Mm. Studio as an artwork, what is this exactly? Mm. Documentation, performance even. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of like sort of going, well, was Duchamp the, the sort of artist there or was it the, the gallery owner that went, oh, yeah, you can do that. <laughs> you know, it's art because he's in a gallery. Well, you know, only if the gallery owner lets you put it in the gallery. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so is it the artist that decides or the gallery owner? No. <laughs> okay, so I've, I've basically gone through most of my questions there. Uh, yeah, over to you, basically, if there's anything that you want to kind of discuss or talk about that we haven't touched upon. Uh, if there isn't, then I suppose if you know your socials, it would probably be good to get you saying them up on the recording. Uh, but yeah, over to you. Okay. Well, uh, I guess our website is um, basementarts.com mm -hmm. and you can sign up to a mail list there as well. Mm -hmm. Um, there's option option for you to do that, and every time we do an exhibition or some kind of event here, we'll always sort of invite people to what we do. Mm -hmm. We also have we're just Basement Arts Project on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. I think I go under my own name, Bruce Davis, weirdly on Pinterest, but I think it's Bracket Basement Arts Project. Don't know why I did that, mm -hmm. and I've just got this new Vero thing as well, which mm -hmm. is quite an interesting uh, little thing to try. Have you got any sort of exciting exhibitions coming up? Anything or like, I mean, obviously you've got one at the moment. Uh, so yeah, you've mentioned that and mm. maybe sort of, do you know how much of your program you, you've got so far? Well, we're only just really kind of getting towards the end of our sort of 2019 program. Mm -hmm. Um, all of the exhibitions we've done this year are the ones that we've held over. That were planned. Yeah. Planned. Yeah. yeah. Um, we're kind of getting to the end of that now. We've got one more from that sort of that pot of people, mm -hmm. a guy called Edward Mortimer, yeah. who, um, does a lot with sort of, uh, ceramic heads and strange insect creatures and things like that. It's very theatrical. <laughs> there's a, there's a massive Boris Karloff Frankenstein head as part of it. <laughs> nice. Um, that's, yeah, that's, it's going to be, the exhibition is going to be called, uh, Crazy Eddie's Base, bargain basement <laughs> and it's a sculptural show so it's going to go right over the winter we're going to put it in november a really appropriate time for such a um 
theatrically morbid mm. <laughs> exhibition until next February. And then I'm sort of talking with a few people at the moment for next year. Chloe Harris, who is a sort of printmaker, mm. who is now based in Manchester, I think, but was based in Leeds for a year or two during the pandemic. Mm. Um, she was doing a project about Amazon warehouses, which she was working in as a key worker. So hopefully we can find um, a way to put some stuff of uh, Amazon work in downstairs. Mm. We're also looking at maybe a project for her with Leeds 2023. We're hoping to do a mural project, which will involve her and um, a couple of other people. But that's all sort of like very much in just the initial planning thoughts to planning stage at the moment. Mm -hmm. Jacob's Ladder, which we've finished, there is still one final part of that left, mm -hmm. and it's called Nature of Balance. It's a second sculpture and it's to go over at the traffic lights at Tunstall Road. So it's only about a hundred yards from Jacob's Ladder across the road, mm -hmm. which will be the last of our 2019 on the corner projects, which we started with the YSI and mm -hmm. New York Sculpture International. And then we've got another couple of, uh, one's a group and one's an individual artist who I'm sort of talking with at the moment to, um, try and bring their work here next year. Both of whom are strong leads. Cool. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, have you had a pretty good showing of leads artists over? Yeah. Yeah. I would imagine so. Predominantly leads artists. Yeah. You know, but we also have had people from Italy, France, all over this country. My mind's got a complete blank now. <laughs> no, that's fair enough. I'm going to wind it up now anyway. Um, so yes, thank you very much for doing this bridge. And, Cheers. Um, yeah, I will press stop. Thank you again to Bruce for being my guest. Thanks again to all my guests. And thanks to you, Leeds, for being my subject. And of course, most of all, thank you to you, my dear listener. Come back on Friday to hear me speak to Ron Wiener. You can follow this show on Twitter at workinghours3 and on Instagram at workinghourspodleads. Use the hashtag workinghourspodleads to stay up to date on when new episodes are being released, to DM me with your questions, or most importantly, to get in touch if you'd like to be my guest on this show. Please do chuck in anything you can to help the show grow. Go to ko-fi.com forward slash workinghours and join me there for a pound a month or you can make a one-off donation of whatever amount. Uh, you can also go to patreon.com forward slash working hours pod to support working hours again from as little as a pound a month. Why not be super awesome and join both? Do something new and something different. Remember to like, share, follow and subscribe to working hours. That's me. Cheers, ears. Take care out there and be kind to each other, leads. Working Hours is produced, recorded, edited and published by Simon Treen for Western Studios Leeds Limited. The music was The Bees from Chopin's Etudes, which is in the public domain and was taken from museopen.org. Please like Western Studios Leeds on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash western underscore studios underscore Leeds and on LinkedIn linkedin.com forward slash company forward slash western hyphen studios. Leads, are you considering taking the plunge into podcasts or audio content? Then think Western Studios for support, advice and guidance on getting it made. At Western Studios, you work with a real life learner who is actually in Leeds. Not a piece of software, not a course of articles or a series of live chats and video courses, but me, a person 
in physical place-based reality. If you want to work with me to make your podcast or any digital audio content in Leeds, whether it's for your own cause, your publicity campaigns to promote your products, increase your sales, or just to create your own passion projects, then get in touch with me, Western Studios, now. Don't wade through vapid articles and videos and podcasts about how to make podcasts by disembodied virtual people on the web. Get on with making your podcast now, and then when it gets hard and expensive and it all goes wrong, which it will, then call Western Studios to make your podcast with you or even for you. Western Studios will take on your podcast boring, time-consuming and painful admin, recording, editing, transcription, whatever. Tell me about your podcasting pain points and I can make it all better for you. I feel your pain. For a charge, I will share it. Remember, podcast work is work. Leads businesses, leads campaigns, leads brands. Got an inkling that you'd like a podcast but don't know where to start? Contact Western Studios at makemypodcast at western-studios.com and we'll start making your podcast straight away. The first hour of arranged consultation and pre-production time is free. £25 an hour after that for editing, recording, production. I can also arrange hefty discounts for the right projects. So tell me your idea and your budget and I'll tell you what I can do for you. What do you have to lose? Time, that's what. Time is running out. The best time to make a podcast was 10 years ago. The second best time is right now. Writers in Yorkshire, what are you doing with your lives? Hopefully you're writing. Well, I know there are listeners out there who want to hear great original writing performed as audio content that is about and for and has been made in Leeds. How do I know this? Because I'm one of them loiners what wants it. Help me make your old screenplays, unpublished novels, unperformed plays, stories, poems and performances, whatever you got, baby, and make it as podcast content. Is your work arty, salacious, pulpy, strange? Good. Is it unfinished? Good. I can help you with that too. I can work with you to find actors, musicians and voiceover artists and quickly realise your projects. I get practice making the shows and you get a finished, performed and published version of your writing. Save yourself the hassle and the headache of making your podcasts on your own by working with me instead.